0: The One Hundred Years' War, the De Deguiscolin period, the Castilian alliance with France. Now on February ninth, 1372, a few days after the Great Council closed in England, Costanza made her ceremonial entry into London as Queen of Castile, accompanied by the Prince of Wales, an exotic mixture of English and Castilian retainers and a great escort of city dignitaries. Crowds lined the streets to see her as she processed along Cheapside and to the Strand to be received by her husband at the Savoy Palace. In the next few weeks, John of Gaunt sent about giving himself the ways of a king. He was henceforth referred to in English official documents as King of Castile and Leon, and was orally addressed as Monsignor d'Espagne. He gathered around him a small court of Castilian knights and ladies, some of whom had accompanied him from Gascony. Others joined him over the following years as successive disasters forced them to flee from Castile and their neighboring kingdoms where they had taken refuge. Within the Gaunt household, a small Castilian chancery was set up under the supervision of Juan Gutierrez, which prepared documents in his name according to the traditional style of King Pedro's chancery, dated after the Castilian era, either sealed with a silver seal of the royal arms of Castile and England, and signed by John's hand in the traditional formula, Yoel Rey, possibly the only words of Spanish that he ever knew. John of Gaunt's marriage and his designs on the throne of Castile proved to be a serious political mistake from every point of view but his own. It cemented the alliance of the, the trastamarian dynasty with its French protectors and made Castile an enemy of England for a generation. Castile was a formidable adversary, The country was relatively infertile and had suffered as much as anywhere in Western Europe from the economic misfortunes of the 14th century. Plague and depopulation, declining production, persistent inflation, all of them accompanied by severe social tensions. But its population was twice the size of England and its resources, although laid waste in the civil wars, were potentially very large. Henry of Testamara had begun his reign with a heavy burden of debt which he had funded, as weak kings tend to do, by lavish disposal of assets and devaluing the coinage. But by the time John of Gaunt chose to pick his quarrel with the new dynasty, the Castilian crown was already well on the way of recovery and disposed of revenues substantially exceeding those of England. The Cortes, which met in the northern town of Toro in September of 1371, resumed the periodic grants of direct taxes on non-nobles, Cervicios, and reintroduced a permanent sales tax, the Alcabala, at the historically high rate of 10%. Over the following years, Castile, although lacking the pervasive bureaucracy of England and France, would gradually join the ranks of Western European countries to whom war brought intensive government and crushing levels of taxation. The tax revenues of the Castilian crown had stood at 500,000 to 600,000 doublas. It's about 100,000 to 120,000 pounds before the Civil War, which was roughly comparable to the annual revenues of the King of England in wartime. They rose well over twice that level at their peak in the, in the 1380s. Castile was the principal naval power in the Atlantic seaboard. She was a major exporter of primary commodities, particularly wool and iron, and with a large and growing merchant fleet. The Biscay ports of Santander, Barremo, Bilbo, and Castro-Undales were a significant force in the Atlantic trade routes. Their ships built for carrying bulk cargoes were amongst the largest vessels afloat, immense sailing vessels carrying 200 tons and upwards. By the way, remember 200 tons is basically a hog's head of wine container, not 2,000 pounds. They were also very much prized as fighting vessels. In addition, Castile maintained the largest permanent war fleet of any Atlantic power. At its peak before the civil wars of the 1360s, it had comprised at least 30 fighting galleys based in Seville, where a large naval arsenal existed to service them. They were designed, managed, and commanded by Genoese experts and acknowledged the acknowledged masters of galley fighting in the late Middle Ages. Gil Brocanagra, Admiral of Castile, and the younger brother of the Doge of Genoa, who died in 1367 after a quarter of a century of service to the kings of Castile, had been among the most famous galley commanders of his day. His son and successor, Ambrosio, was an enterprising and ingenious naval commander of the same tradition. Henry of Testamara had been under contract to supply his galley fleet to the King of France since the naval treaty of 1368. It is possible that he would have done so even if John of Gaunt had not publicly claimed his throne, but it is by no means certain. Henry had been in a position to send naval assistance to France ever since the conclusion of the Treaty of al in Portugal, March of 1371, but had done very little about it. During the summer of that year, there was a great deal of diplomatic traffic between Paris and the Castilian court. The instructions of these emissaries had not survived, but the naval question was certainly part of them. Yet Charles V was so uncertain of Castilian support that he applied to the Republic of Genoa to furnish the required twenty galleys instead. There is every reason to believe that Henry of Testamaro's rather cool attitude to his obligation was transformed late in the day by the news of John of Gaunt's marriage to his niece. The event evidently caused great consternation amongst his counsellors. They had not forgotten the Prince of Wales' devastating invasion of 1367, and like much of Europe, they entertained exaggerated notions of England's military capacity. In September of 1371, Henry told the Cortes of Toro that he had resolved to send the fleet to support the King of France in the following year. Part of the exceptionally heavy taxation authorized by the Cortes was required in order to equip and man it. Towards the end of the year, a solemn embassy arrived at the French court from Castile to confirm the naval treaty and enlist support of France against what was obviously thought to be a grave imminent peril. This happened at a crucial moment in France, whose maritime fortunes were then at a low ebb. After the humiliating abandonment of the king's project for invading England in 1369, An attempt had been made to address the problem by a program of new construction at the Royal Arsenal at Rouen. Initially, the workforce concentrated on making Norman barges, long clinker-built ships somewhat like Scandinavian longships, with raised stern and forecastle, powered by up to 200 oarsmen, and an auxiliary sailing rig. Three of them were built during the winter of 1369-70, two more in the following winter. These were the traditional workhorses of the French Royal Navies, but they were slow, notoriously short-lived. At the beginning of 1370, a Genoese shipwright was hired to supervise the construction of proper Mediterranean galleys, smooth-sided, faster, and more robust. Six of these vessels were built in 1370, and three more in 1371. In addition, there were five Mediterranean galleys hired from the Grimaldi of Monaco and about five older Rouen galleys, probably dating from the 1340s and 1350s, of the types known as gallets hussiers, with broader hulls and stern gates for loading horses. This was a significant force, but it had not been well used. The first two years of the war was an undistinguished period of French naval operations. The only notable feat of arms was the destruction of part of Portsmouth by a cruising squadron detached from the invasion fleet of 1369. This has done nothing to divert the English from their purpose and subsequent events showed it to be a flash in the pan. The reasons for this are simply unclear. The lack of experienced galley captains and crews was certainly a problem. Émery of Nerbonne, who was appointed admiral of France at the end of 1369, was a valiant knight but completely without specialized skills. Although he went to sea with his fleet his functions as commander, practice appear to have been exercised by his deputy, Jean de Colombier, a shipmaster from Montpellier, who was relieved of his duties after a year. There were many problems with the French government had never really mastered, associated with the deployment of galleys and other oared ships. They were ideal for coastal raiding because their shallow draft, maneuverability, and large armed crews. However, they required regular maintenance and frequent refits, They had limited storage space, which meant they could not remain at sea for very long without returning to port to get food and drink. They were vulnerable to attack by sailing ships, which, although less maneuverable, had the advantage of height, and could be built up with raised timbers, superstructures, fore and aft. This was an important consideration at a time when when bows and arrows were still the main weapons of naval warfare. The greatest medieval sea captains fought with oared vessels and sailing ships in combined fleets but the French efforts in this direction continued to be addled by the shortage of large French sailing vessels. In 1370, the French did nothing with their fleet until mid-July, when a squadron of 24 ships eventually sailed from the Seine. The squadron comprised 10 of 16 galleys in the French service, together with 13 large sailing ships and a sea-going barge chartered in Castile. The returns from this all-out effort were meager. The first few days of the cruise, the fleet burnt the village of Gosport outside of Portsmouth, captured the large merchantman of Mayon. But although they were at sea on and off until early November, the rest of their cruise was uneventful apart from pin- pinprick raids on undefended settlements. They failed to intercept the King of Navarre on his return from Southampton to Cherbourg. The record was worse in 1371. French-strengthened galleys and oared barges, now stood at between 20 and 25 vessels, and along the south and west coasts the English were bracing themselves for a savage campaign of coastal raids. In fact, the French ships passed a whole year in layup, probably because they had not been properly maintained. The Castilian naval alliance, coupled with the gradual revival of France's indigenous maritime strength over the next decade, shifted the strategic balance in France's favor. The Castilians not only threatened England's ability to move armies more or less freely at any point on Europe's long Atlantic coastline as she had done since the Battle of Suez in 1370. The constant threat to England's maritime counties profoundly altered England's attitudes to the war, forcing the English government to concentrate more of their financial and military resources on home defenses and severely limiting their capacity to defend Aquitaine, or for that matter, to send a great expeditionary army to France. So it's interesting to see that the boost in French-Castilian alliance pretty much decimated the English capability of even saving Aquitaine and even, of course, invading France. Now the sources for this, the Hundred Years' War by Foissart, his Chronicles, the Hundred Years' War by Perrois, the Hundred Years' War by Nylans, and the Hundred Years' War, Volume 3, a house divided by Sumption. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website sumahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.